is a podcast that explores the link between success and failure. With me, Sam Emery, talking to guests from all around the world, we look at the challenges we face every day, the resilience required to overcome them, and ultimately the impact these experiences have on our life and the greater community. My guest for this episode is from the New South Wales South Coast alumni as well, member for Kiama and Minister for Families, Communities and Disability Services since 2019 the Honourable Mr Gareth Ward. I first heard of Gareth when I moved back to my hometown of Nowra on the New South Wales South Coast and he had recently been elected on the Shoalhaven Council. I think it was around 2004. And being a budding young journalism student, I actually read the newspaper back then and I can't remember exactly what it was, but I quickly noted that Gareth loved to speak out and speak up for matters that he believed in. Gareth quickly rose through the political ranks, becoming Deputy Mayor by 2008 and elected into the state government in 2011 as the member for Kaiama. And I've thoroughly enjoyed watching Gareth's career. He's a fiercely proud local lad, born in the Illawarra region and completing his schooling in, at uh, Bomaderry High School, also known as North Shore High to some of the locals. Mr Ward holds degrees in Commerce and Arts from the University of Wollongong and a Bachelor of Laws from the University of New England from 2001 to 2006. Gareth served on the Council of the Wollongong Undergraduate Students Association at the University and was involved with the Australian Liberal Students Federation. He holds a graduate diploma in legal practice from the Australian National University and is an admitted solicitor in the Supreme Court of New South Wales and the High Court of Australia. Now, I read that not only as a slight Wikipedia update, but just to show the picture that Gareth does not like to sit still. And I can't wait to find out what makes the man tick and, of course, what Gareth Ward's philosophy is. Because like all of our lives, I'm sure it hasn't always been rosy, fun and carefree. Minister for Families, Communities and Disability Services, the Honourable Mr Gareth Ward, thanks so much for taking your time out to uh, come on to philosophy. An absolute pleasure, Sam. Thanks for having me with you. Well, Gareth, yeah, as I, as I mentioned earlier, thanks so much for taking some time out when things were so close to being uh, seemingly normal here in, in New South Wales and Australia. But now with the Greater Sydney area on the edge of our seat, uh, as we wait to see what happens next with this COVID situation, thankfully, it looks like there's no cases yet in your area, in the Illawarra and the South Coast. But how would you say the local area is coping at the moment? Well, I think we need to continue to be vigilant. And uh, as you'd be aware, uh, there were some comments made yesterday uh, that suggested that we should ensure that the whole Illawarra and Shoalhaven uh, is on high alert. Uh, certainly the public health order's legal effect uh, is in relation to the Wollongong local government area, but uh, we're making sure that we encourage people to do the right thing uh, right across the region uh, because we don't want Christmas in New South Wales to be like Easter was in Victoria. Uh, we don't want to go down a path of a six-month lockdown um, or up to six months uh, because um, of uh, things we could have or should have done. We're, we've learnt the lessons about the need to go hard and go early, uh, and that's what we're, we're seeking to do. Um, and look, that's uh, sometimes meant some confusion for people because obviously as a federation, other states will have uh, their reactions to that, uh, who can travel where and um, what restrictions might be applied. But uh, when I look around the world, Sam, there's no other place I'd rather be right now than in New South Wales. I was watching a documentary the other night, and uh, it was talking about um, how every 30 seconds someone's passing away tragically in the US. Um, and there were some stories about a nurse that lost both her husband and her mother within the space of three days, another lady who 
lost her 13-year-old daughter who was susceptible to, to viruses. Um, and whilst there's certainly plenty of stories of loss and anguish in our country, uh, they haven't been on the scales that we've seen in other nations. So um, uh, I'm proud of the way our, our, our people have responded. I'm proud of the way that our governments have worked hard. Um, there's going to be challenges up until securing a vaccine, but um, we're doing our very, very best. Uh, without the how-to guide to dealing with a global pandemic, for which there is no volume, uh, we're doing our very best to respond. I appreciate that, Gareth. Thanks. And, and yeah, for what it's worth, I, I, uh, I am very proud of, of how our country has reacted and, and how the community's reacted. You know, there, there are, there's certainly the naysayers out there, but I think that the general population seem to be doing the right thing. But it makes me think too, Gareth, what, what is it like being on both sides of the fence? You know, being a citizen and a politician, you know, it must give you uh, more scope and, and, and balance or, or are you simply sort of too busy to get into the, to the nitty-gritty of it all with your own uh, department? Well, well, look, I don't think I'm on both sides of the fence. I mean, look, I'm a local first and foremost. I couldn't be in Parliament if I didn't have the support of my local community. So, uh, you know, I think my job is very much to, to make um, – the executive government aware of, of exactly what our region needs, and particularly times like this, it's important to have local voices, particularly around the cabinet table, where a lot of these decisions are being made, or uh, alongside the premier and the health minister, who are obviously making these decisions. Look, it, it's been a really tough year. I mean, I'm the social services minister in the largest state in the country. Um, we've gone through bushfires, floods, uh, drought uh, prior to all of that, and of course, COVID nineteen. So, for me, my, my portfolio. Sam covers everything from uh, children in and out of home care, so that's children that have been removed from their parents for whatever reason, uh, adoption, guardianship. Um, I cover homelessness and housing, uh, disability services, youth justice, volunteering and carers. Um, so you can imagine that when you're talking about the impacts of any major event, be it a fire or a pandemic, it's always tragically the most vulnerable that, that have to carry the greatest weight. So it's important that um, I'm very much on their side. And uh, as a local MP, uh, to directly to your question, it's very much important that I'm on the community side about making sure we get the right responses from government in place. And look, by and large, I think we have. And I can take you through some of those outcomes further throughout the interview. But um, I think that there's a lot of good to come out of all of this as well. I'm sure it's been really tough. But um, I think there's going to be some things will change in our lives that... um, have come as a result of all of this that'll be uh, commonplace for a long time to come. So, Gareth, what, what does being a politician mean to you and, and why did you decide to, to make a career out of it? Well, look, um, as you mentioned, I'm very much of, of my local community. In fact, uh, the first thing I did was um, get appointed to our, our local youth advisory council of, of the Shoalhaven City Council. And there was a campaign for a youth centre, uh, which I was very much involved with. And um, there were other things that actually cropped up too. Um, the, the council tried to sell land uh, behind where we lived um, to uh, a developer, which um, that land had always been set aside for public open space. And I remember going along to my, my first council meeting as um, uh, a snippy young university student and um, uh, having to speak up and speak out against uh, actions I thought were inappropriate. And I actually ran for council uh, because of that involvement when I was 18. Now, I lost that election. And in so many respects, I'm glad I did because I think um, whilst certainly young and youthful voices have always got a place in, in representative politics if we're to uh, be truly representative of our entire community, for me, I think having those extra years of maturity uh, were really important because I was elected four years later um, and I had some pretty uh, tough fights with, with um, other councillors about things that I thought were in the interest of our community or issues I wanted to raise. 
Um, and I was elected as an independent. I wasn't on the council as a, as a liberal, mm. uh, but I was active certainly in, in the young liberals and in student liberal politics uh, because I enjoyed politics. But, um, you know, there were events that happened in my life that certainly steered me towards state politics, not least of which uh, my mum having breast cancer and having to go between home and Wollongong and seeing the impact of her treatment on her as a cancer patient and uh, that of many others that um, also had to travel from much longer distances further south. And the need for a cancer centre was profound. But I'd also seen the loss of life on the Princess Highway and attended funerals of people that I knew. Uh, and when Barry O'Farrell rang me um, prior to the 2011 election to uh, encourage me to stand, he asked me what were the things that I wanted to achieve. Uh, and they were the two things at that time that, that were most important to me. Now, um, obviously, the rest is history, Sam. Um, we now have that cancer centre and mum's had cancer subsequently twice uh, and is uh, is well and truly still with us. And, and that's in no part, I think, small part due to the treatment she received at the uh, Shoalhaven Cancer Centre. And, of course, uh, the Princess Highway upgrades speak for themselves. Um, uh, we delivered on the Jeringong upgrade. Um, we delivered the Berry Bypass, which many people said they'd never drive on. Uh, we're doing the Albion Park Rail Bypass, uh, which is a year ahead of schedule. Again, a project that people said they'll never drive on it. And, of course, we've got the Berry to Bromedary upgrade happening now on time and on budget uh, and the Shoalhaven River Bridge to in- ensure the crossing security of, uh, of the Shoalhaven River. I mean, they are phenomenal achievements. I mean, one of those projects alone would be what a local member would dine out on for the rest of their career. But um, since becoming the local member, from the state government alone, I've secured $2.5 billion. And uh, once all of that work is completed, we would have duplicated the Princess Highway throughout my entire electorate. What is the process like? I mean, they are huge projects. And, and being a South Coast boy myself, you know, I grew up knowing that whatever uh, day it was, or, you know, towards the weekend, I'd be sitting in the Kayama Bends for an extra 20 minutes to, to an hour. And, uh, you know, as you said, all those things. And also my mum uh, also attended the Shoalhaven Cancer Centre there. Um, and, yes, that's absolutely amazing to have that facility, state-of-the-art facility, you know, in an area that uh, really did did need it, but how hard is it, Gareth? What are, what is the process, and and what do you face when you when you're fighting to get that kind of money? Well, it is hard um, because there are 93 electorates around the state, and every local member is obviously doing their bit for their local community. But um, you know, I think that people will judge me, Sam, uh, now in the past or in the future on what I actually get done. Uh, people expect their local members of parliament to work hard and to get results, and uh, I'll pit my record against anyone's any day of the week uh, because uh, you know there are some things you just can't train yourself to do. I mean, I've had a set of experiences in life that have led me to where I am now, and I've called on every skill that um, I've either been gifted or, or uh, have developed in order to make sure I'm in the right position to argue those cases forcefully. Um, no one dropped $2.5 billion in my lap and said, go and spend it. I had to you know, raise these issues in Parliament. I had to uh, manoeuvre with premiers, with treasurers, with roads ministers, with departments, um, with councils. Uh, and along the way, there's been some fights. that These things have not happened by accident. Um, they've happened because of grit and determination. And um, you know, I, I went into Parliament to do things for my community. I, that was the only reason I went into politics. I mean, there are other things, Sam, that I could be doing um, frankly, paying me a lot more money, but um, it's not money that's ever motivated me. It's it's knowing that um, more people are receiving treatment from our local health services, knowing that we've seen a huge reduction 
in the loss of life on the Princess Highway. I mean, there's so many lives, an incalculable number, have been saved because of those investments. I mean, that's that's the only return I need is to know that um, what I went to Parliament to do, I've delivered. Well, let's let's talk about the community and 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 where you grew up. You know, born in the Illawarra. Yeah, like so many great people, uh, I'm sure you'd agree. Um, Absolutely. What, Best part of the world. <laughs> yeah, no arguments here. What was your local community like, you know, where you grew up and, and what was your childhood like? Well, look, um, I had a, a childhood that, um, uh, you know, was, was tough in many respects because uh, my parents separated when I was young. Uh, but I suppose my challenges in life started from day one. I, I was born with ocular cutaneous albinism. Uh, that rendered me legally blind since birth. In fact, um, you know, I often tell the story that uh, doctors said to my parents in the 1980s, you'll need to keep him in the dark and behind closed doors. Um, oh because there, there wasn't, well, there wasn't much known about albinism then. I mean, albinism right. is a genetic dysfunction where your, your body does not produce melanin. Now, from the outside, that means that my skin and my hair have no color. They're white. Uh, and people would often associate albinism with just that fact. But, Melanin is also important for your retina. And if um, your retina doesn't develop a certain part of the brain uh, by the age of seven that, it, that involves um, melanin in order to do that, then your sight will, will, will never change. It'll never get any better. It'll only decline with age like everyone else's does. So a sign you can see from 60 metres, I can only see from six. It also affects my short distance vision. And, um, you know, I had some some good teachers, but I also had the odd uncharitable one too that, you know, would, would say things like, you'll never amount to much, only do your best. Um, and, you know, it was tough because the training just wasn't there for teachers, nor was the support um, necessarily there too to help them out to make sure they understood what they needed to do. So I spent large parts of my, my periods in, in high school in the library, enlarging onto A3 paper and, and blowing up to... 141% notes that sometimes weren't big enough. Um, and I remember there was a piece of equipment that my my um, uh, my school got me, which I could use at school, called a closed-circuit television, which uh, is a camera and a screen which essentially enlarges text, which you move back and forward on a tray. Um, now, um, I didn't have those in the classrooms. The notes were often inadequate in the classrooms, and often I was spending large times outside of class not being part of the tuition. Um, blowing up notes, and to see the blackboard, I used a monocular. So I'd literally have to look up with a with a what was called a miniscope, read the blackboard using a monocular, make my notes, and then go up again, down, up, down, up, down, up, all the time. Um, and in and relation kids, to home, kids are so forgiving too, Gareth. You know, I'm sure they, oh, I'm look, sure they didn't pick oh, on that at all. Yeah, look, <laughs> look, certainly I, I copped a lot of bullying, and you know, it was everything from being uh, the last picked for any sports team uh, initially. Uh, through to having your hat nicked and thrown around the place because obviously needed a hat when I was outside, um, but that, that wasn't that wasn't the majority. I have to say. I mean, look, um, sure there was bullying and, and that was pretty horrible, but at least then it stopped at the school gate. I mean, now bullying is a, a whole different thing because it follows kids home on social media. So mm-hmm. at least you had a bit of a sanctuary at home. But I did have good friends, uh, but certainly there were some people that, that did take the opportunity to sledge. But but coming back to the the, the equipment I needed um, back in the eighties and nineties, that that closed circuit television was really needed at home. Now, um, by this time, Mum had divorced my father. Um, I was living in Bomaderry. We weren't a wealthy family, um, and uh, Mum approached the Bomaderry Lions for uh, funding five thousand dollars. It was uh, to support uh, the need of this equipment, and 
they actually came good on that. Bruce Murphy, who recently uh, was awarded an Australia Day Honours list, was yeah. the president at the time, and he uh, championed for that. And um, uh, I've got no doubt that uh, that was a huge point in my life. I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for that gift from Bomadary Lines. So if anyone wants to blame people for my political existence, they're the ones to blame, uh, because certainly certainly that helped. But, I mean, there were other teachers like Eugene Hillier, the late Eugene Hillier at Bomadary Primary School, who could see that I was falling behind because I wasn't getting in-class support. And he actually took me aside and taught me to touch type and helped to try and bring my reading up to speed. So there's certainly been those um, those um, those guardian angels that have helped along the way. Uh, but um, by any assessment, Sam, it, it wasn't um, an easy upbringing. I, I couldn't get a licence. Um, I, uh, I, I couldn't participate in my education to the same degree. So everything was a little bit harder. Uh, but... In my case, that's only ever made me more determined. I mean, you've got two choices in life. You've got one shot at it. You can roll yourself up into a ball and say it's all too hard and, you know, woe is me. Well, how boring is that? Um, You're never going to know your full potential. You're never going to know what you can achieve unless you have a go. And it sounds like you also had that community support around you. I mean, for the Lions to band together and and to raise that money and, and donate that money so you could get that equipment to obviously that your mother didn't ever give up either and do you remember what I mean it's a it's a it's a fairly sort of broad question I guess but do you remember thinking as a kid like wow my life is going to be this hard forever you know or was it just were you just constantly motivated to get on top of it no of course I mean I there were things I wanted to do in life that I I questioned whether or not I I I could but you know, I think it comes down to character. That's something you can't teach. Um, and, you know, sure, I had good parents, but there were things I was determined to do. Um, and, you know, I know people love um, writing these stories of, of people they want to write up as, as being there for them, and certainly I had that. But it also comes down to character. Mm. Um, you have to want to push through to in order to do so. If the, if the will and the determination is not there, then you won't. You won't do it. Um you know, sometimes if it's meant to be, it is up to me. You, you need you need to you need to get in there and have a go. And yep, there were plenty of instances where I knew and I was aware of my own limitations. Um, sadly, I don't think that's something necessarily resident amongst people with disabilities. I think there are plenty of people in the world that are probably not aware of their own limitations. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's about balancing that against what you can achieve. I remember I came home once and I told my mum that I wanted to play golf for school sport, and it was the first time I'd seen her in a long time. Um, shocked and, and not particularly encouraging. And in fact, um, my stepfather, um, who I didn't always enjoy a great relationship with, um, went as far as being, frankly, disparaging and, 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 and quite callous about the whole thing. But um, not only did I play, but I, I whipped most of the people from school that had full eyesight. Um, and, uh, um, you know, you that was... Do you remember why? Why you chose golf? Had you... Why? Because uh, I enjoyed it. Um, Right. I didn't think it ruined a good walk at that at that particular age, although I'm not quite as good as I was in high school. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and um, you know, it's a way of getting out and um, socialising and talking. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, at the end of the day, the ball's stationary. Once you hit it, it's somebody else's problem. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really your best bet. That's right. Yeah. Look, I mean, I got to know Narrow Golf Club really well and became a member. And look, I got to know where the pins were. So, um, you, you know, you then worked out like anyone has to. What, what are your... Mm capacity with a with a with a one wood a two wood a five iron a seven iron a, 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 my short game was always very good um because i could see the pin um 
And, uh, you know, I think um, like a lot of people who get frustrated with golf, uh, my eyesight perhaps was something I chose to blame on occasions, but perhaps that wasn't the, perhaps that wasn't the thing I should be blaming. At least you had a good excuse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah look, I, and always feel free to carve out the sacred cow when I can. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, that, I mean, if, if life gives you a card like that, uh, I know my wife and I often talk about it, who uh, she also had cancer. Uh, a bit over 10 years ago and uh, we used to always call pull out the c card when you need it you know <laughs> oh well look um i i've tried to avoid doing that i have to say i mean there have been times where you know it is directly relevant and and you do you do need to educate people and i think that's mm. actually the role of of people with disabilities sometimes i, I think um people with disabilities can, can can expect too much i know that might sound a bit odd coming from the Minister for Disabilities, but I think the reason I say that, and just to be clear, is that I think you've also got to be the educator. There's an encumbrance on, or an incumbent, sorry, on, on, on people with disabilities to be the educator to explain uh, what they need so that you can inform others. Because you'll find that most people are inclusive. They do want to understand. They do, they do care. Very few people are callous in this world. Um, uh, but sometimes it's about ensuring you, you take people on that journey with you and that you, you help them understand. And once they know, they'll be fine. Uh, you know, I, I often say to people with disabilities, don't hold back, be bold, be brave. Um, you know, if you, want to, if you want to achieve things in life, you can. You'll find no shortage of people that will be there to support you. But you also have an obligation to speak up and, and be leaders and um, explain why uh, you can reach that full potential uh, with the right supports and, and, and with the right understanding and acknowledgement. Gareth, do you believe that failure is a, a negative word? No. And I'll tell you when I developed my clear view on, on failure. It was when I was in Israel. Uh, I've fortunately twice had the opportunity to go to Israel. And they are surrounded by, by countries that obviously um, uh, have serious uh, both diplomatic and religious and historical issues with, with the state of Israel. Um, not, well, I won't get into that debate today unless you want to go there. But <laughs> I think um, that's another podcast, yes. Well, look, happy to, happy to talk about it. But, um, uh, you, you know, the, the Israelis don't see failure as a dirty word. They just, they just say, well, it's just not its time. I mean, here, if the government made an investment into a startup or, you know, a tech product and fell over, there'd be parliamentary inquiries and white papers and green papers. There, they just say it's not its time. Uh, and um, in order to try anything, Sometimes that will involve failure. Sometimes that means that things won't happen. But it's just such a refreshing view of, 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 uh, of when something doesn't work. I mean, failure is often associated as, as, a, as a negative. I would, I would say the only negative was, was uh, if, if you never tried in the first place um, because you won't know what you're capable of. You won't know how to develop ideas and concepts further. Uh, but that was really, I think, the turning point for me a few years ago um, when I had that opportunity and um, to, to understand why why that culture had developed because of the urgency about things often there. And, and look, look at how successful they've been. They're a flower in the desert. They're irrigation programs. They're, um, their military might, their strength as a, as a country is, is profound because they've been prepared to fail, because uh, on occasions it hasn't gone their way, uh, but they've profited from mistakes. And they've learnt the value of those lessons. So, how do you think failure then is approached in the Australian world of politics? You know, internally, meaning how is it dealt with between the halls, you know, and walls that sort of govern our our state? I don't think we embrace um, mistakes in the same way as other countries do. I think there, um, there's, a, there's a tendency for the media, in particular, uh, to believe 
that politicians hold themselves up as perfectionists. Um, and that I think that sometimes politicians fall into the trap of wanting to be all things to all people, to be absolutely accurate about everything. And then when that doesn't happen, um, there's a pile on. Um, and look, the Ruby Princess is probably a great example of that, um, where there was um, an inquiry commission, there was calls for the health minister to resign during a global pandemic. I mean, how, how idiotic would have that been? I mean, there is no you know, how-to guide to dealing with a global pandemic. Um, and as much as Brad Hazard is the longest-serving member of parliament, he wasn't around when the Spanish flu was a thing. So, um, you know, what we learned from, from the Ruby Princess was actually critical to our health response moving forward, not least of which the power of contact tracing and how to refine that process. Um, and, and whilst no one would have wanted the Ruby Princess to occur, but let's face it, as... Um, uh, Brett Kavanagh said in his report, uh, that virus was on that ship long before it entered Australian waters. And whilst there were things that, that perhaps could have been done better, um, it was a great opportunity also to um, to make sure that we, we informed our processes moving forward. And now New South Wales is the gold standard uh, in spite of what's happening on the northern beaches at the moment. Um, there's no other place I'd rather be than, than New South Wales. So if, if I know certainly the media does like to jump on those things and and can often just not be helpful to progress forward. But if, if, if the government and if, if we're not necessarily embracing failure, how do you see that we can improve in that area? Well, look, I think it depends on the issue. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm a very, I've always been a very forgiving person. Um, and uh, there are some things, though, I won't forgive, Sam. Um, I won't forgive hypocrisy. I won't forgive corruption. And I won't forgive criminality. Um, but I think it's important we forgive mistakes. I mean, people make genuine and honest mistakes, um, and you know, I think it's important to forgive those. Uh, and perhaps forgive is the wrong word. I do, I do forgive. I perhaps forget. Perhaps I'll replace that mm. uh, and say so that I, I don't forget. Um, uh, you should always forgive. It's important. The powerful the power of uh, of forgiving and even praying for your enemies is is actually a very important thing in my view. Um, but um, uh, I, I would say that I think that. We've got a bit of a way to go um, in our culture. I think there's still a bit of a, <laughs> a, a fragrance of the rum core of, uh, of, of strict of strict rules and conditions that um, that operate and uh, in this state. And I think that we could be a bit kinder to each other uh, when people make genuine errors. Uh, so long, so long as we learn from them. The ultimate crime is if you make a mistake and don't learn from it. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic point to make too. And and even when with your correction, where you know, I think forgiveness on all sides is is an important thing and it's great to see that and hear that our politicians can do the same thing because it is in a way it's kind of sad and and you may disagree but it's i feel like the a lot of the community now don't quite look up to and respect our politicians quite as much as we used to and i think there's a real opportunity lost on a greater spectrum for our political leaders to really lead by example and and to be connected um, you know, and perhaps that's a, a part of the media relationship there as well. But uh, it's certainly nice to hear a sort of level-headed and and, um, and balanced view on the way forward for politics. Well, I mean, even as a cabinet minister, Sam, I mean, I, I personally respond on Facebook where I can. I still hold my village visits, my mobile office days, and that's how I cornered you it. in for this podcast. Actually, that's, <laughs> indeed you did, indeed you did. So <laughs> I you. still do them without appointment and. You know, isn't it amazing that, that in, a, in a country like ours that you can still walk down the street and run into a premier or a prime minister 
and talk to them directly, or a cabinet minister and talk to them directly, or a local member of parliament. I mean, there are some countries. I was talking with a uh, an Indian colleague that has security everywhere he goes. Um, yeah, I, I mean, the, the facts ministry which I have is often one of the more controversial. But you know, I've I've never felt um, unsafe uh, uh, because of you know the support that you have around you and the community that we live in. Um, so. I've always tried to be accessible. It's funny, you know, people have a view about politicians, Sam, and I encourage people in the media not not to uh, perhaps um, uh, continue to push the view that the community don't trust politicians. I think that there is... If you ask people about politicians generally, they'll say, oh, yeah, they're all the same. But if you ask often about people's local members, it's a very different view you'll get um, because people know you. You've been at their kids' Christmas uh, uh, events or school presentation evenings, um, You've seen them at the local sports club. They've presented a grant to your community organisation or your church. Uh, I, I think people do have a different view of their local member. And yeah, you know, look, I agree with I, you on I, that, Gareth. Gareth yeah. Sorry to interrupt you there, but yeah. I, I think I think it is because what more than more often than not, you hear from Australian people. They just want to know the politicians, and and we feel like that we've lost that connection, and and that. Um, when we are, when they are speaking to, to the big media corporations or, or when they're in front of the camera or whatever it is, they're not being true to themselves. So we feel this disconnection now. And with, yeah. Whereas your local member, you do, as you said, you're seeing them at the school, you're seeing them down the street. You might even, unfortunately, see them in their uh, cycling gear or something like that. But you're seeing <laughs> them for who they are. You know. Um, well, look, I blame the media for that. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you why. I mean, look, media has shifted from from information to infotainment mm-hmm. these days. And, you know, think about this. I mean, a politician gets a grab on the news. Who selects that? Well, the journalist. Um, and so, you know, the media, they don't tell us what to think, but they do tell us what to think about. People still have their own views, but um, I think, you know, the media have a, an obligation all this too. I mean, if you go back to newspapers you know, 20, 30 years ago, you look at the more substance and detail that was in that reporting uh, back then uh, than there is today. But conversely, there are more opportunities. Like I, even as a minister, I sit on... Facebook uh, when I'm in the car or on the train and, and respond to people directly. Uh, and, you know, if you think of your members of parliament 20, 30 years ago, you wrote a letter to them. That took seven days to get there. They'd get it. They'd respond to it. Um, they might have to send off a representation to another minister and then get back to you. Now with email and, and social media, I mean, I, you only need to look at my social media in relation to the last 24 hours in relation to COVID. I've been responding and hauling back into line some people. I don't hold back on social media. I'm not a pinata. Uh, if people want to come after me, don't expect some you know, sanitised focus group responded question. I'll have a go if you have a go at me. And I think actually people like that, that, that brutal honesty. That, um, to, your some point, think- to your point on the, on the media though, Gareth, as well, is it, is, it, is it not also a case that the media or the polit- on the politician side of things, you know, from the outside looking in, it looks like you, the, they're curving to sort of suit what will be shown on, you know, we're seeing it with our sports stars as well. Like they're so trained and they're so media savvy now that they just give those sort of, you know, one to two minute answers so they know they'll get 30 to 60 seconds out of it. And is it is it not a bit of both? I mean, if you think of the Bob Hawks, the Paul Keatings, the John Howards to a certain extent, um, you know, Barry O'Farrell was quite good at it as well on a state level. They seemingly didn't really care what was going to be said the next day in the paper or on the radio. But it seems like now more weight is held on what media will say. You know, some would argue that's why we've had so many different uh, prime ministers in the last eight years, because they were too scared to just stand up and, and show themselves and, and too worried about what was going to be in to uh, what was going to be said in the media the next day. 
Look, uh, no, I disagree with that. I, I, I think they were probably concerned for what was in was in the newspaper. Um, I think there's just so many me- mediums of communication these days. I mean, uh, if you compare the number of newspapers sold at a, a metropolitan train station ten years ago to today, it's it's a huge decrease because people get you know communications on their phones, and that might be directly from you know, press conferences that go live with the premier or prime minister, or it might be even their local MP. And I think though the media still, still the big media stables still play a big role in influencing the public. Uh, and I think they've got to be mindful of that uh, because uh, you know, their agenda-setting power is enormous. I don't necessarily think that people accept what they say, but their agenda-setting power, what they see as important, what they put on the front page is where the focus of the press, press will be. Um, I, look, I think, though, you are right to a point that some leaders uh, certainly say one thing but believe another. And you know, I think people in, in Australia anyway would rather authenticity than just simply telling them what they want to hear. They'd be more prepared to vote for someone that was authentic and disagree with them on one or two things um, than vote for vote for somebody knowing that they may not believe everything they say. They want to see people and hear people make a mistake and then apologise for it and, and own it, I think. is. is oh, and I've done thing. that plenty of times. Yeah. I've done that plenty of times. Uh, and, um, you know, that's, that's uh, I think, you know, that's, that's, people make mistakes. People mm. make mistakes. Uh, so long as, as I say, that they're not, you know, criminal, hypocritical, or or, uh, or, or corrupt in in the public sphere. Anyway, um, I think generally uh, people will accept genuine and honest mistakes. There were a couple of things that came up in the newspapers uh, with you, Gareth, on a personal level, being out in a park, but you know, the, being offered a massage. There were a couple of things that came out in the paper that you did have to face up to. Was that a difficult time? And and how did you sort of work through that? And or did you just you know, it seemed in your responses that you believed in yourself, you came out and, and owned the situation and explained what had happened. Yeah, that's right. And that's all you can do. Uh, that's all you can do. Um, I think that uh, when these things happen in life, uh, you know, you need to be clear and honest. And uh, I was in those instances and stand by everything I said at the time. Mm. Nine years in state politics, Gareth. It's nothing to laugh at. Uh, can you remember what your first day was like? I do. I do. Um, I remember walking in the building, and it's the same feeling I get every time I walk in. It's a sense of uh, absolute awe and um, and gratefulness to the community that put me here because now this is the building where I'm sitting right now, actually in Parliament, um, talking to you. Uh, it's the building where uh, the convict trade was ended. It's the building where. The debate around capital punishment was was fought and 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 won and ended. It's the building where public education was first introduced uh, into uh, this country for the first time. It's the place where there was discussions about um, and bills enacted to build the Harbour Bridge and the Opera House. Um, you know, it's been the first state, the leading state in the nation, where um, much of the discussion around the federation emanated. Leaders like Henry Parks, who were also premier. I mean, every time I walk through this building, I, I know and I'm very conscious that I'm following in the footsteps of people who do great things for this country and um, their their legacy is enormous uh, and extraordinary uh, and it's hard it's hard to follow in those footsteps but um, all you can do is do your very best. Um, in my case, as a, a local member who loves where I live uh, and just wants to care and look after the people that um, I, I have the privilege of serving, um, through to being the minister for the most vulnerable in the state and being 
ever focused on uh, trying to do the right thing by them. Unfortunately, too. I mean, that's where I was meant to be sitting with you today to record this podcast. And I was so excited and, and honoured that you'd invited me into your office there. And um, unfortunately, with COVID and with restrictions, I, you know, obviously wanted to do the right thing and, and stay put in my home. But uh, I, I would have loved to have been sitting in there and looking at the halls with you and and uh, get a sense of the building. Um, but well, it's, it's an interesting place, you know. I mean, um uh, it, it was actually the senior surgeon's quarters for the Sydney Hospital. Um, if you want to go back to 1810, Lachlan Macquarie came to the colony to deal with the uprising from the Rum Corp. And uh, uh, after he settled that, he, he discovered that the colony didn't have a hospital. So he wrote away to the government in England with a line that we still use to this day, there's no money. Uh, and so he levied a tax on rum. And 60,000 gallons of rum later, they built the Rum Hospital. Now, either side, they built uh, the senior surgeon's quarters and the junior surgeon's quarters. Now, the junior surgeon's quarters is today the Mint. The senior surgeon's quarters is the Parliament. But it didn't become the Parliament, Sam, until 1829. That The Legislative Council first came into being in 1824. Governor Brisbane was in charge. It wasn't a penal colony anymore. Um, people like um, Francis Greenway, who, who came here as a convict, who was a qualified architect after he'd finished his service, went into private practice. And many of the buildings in Macquarie Street, uh, including this one, were designed by him. Um, so that they wanted more nuanced laws because people stayed after their their um their time as a as a convict to till the soil, set up businesses, and um, that was where Brisbane decided that we needed uh, not just martial law but um, uh, colonial law, and uh, uh, that was where um, the first legislative council took off from. It met at the senior, the chief secretary's building down the road. It came up to Parliament, or what was then the senior surgeons' quarters, in 1829, and from there. Uh, we saw the parliament evolve. 1856, we saw self-government and uh, we had two chambers and, of course, some um, federations and the discussions around federation in 1901. What a history lesson. Thank you, Gareth. Oh, I, could go, I could go on. I could go I on. Bet I bet you could. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's fascinating. So, look, in your role as families, uh, communities and disability services, uh, you know, what are some of the political challenges you've faced and, and how have you overcome them? Well, you know, in spite of this, most extraordinary year, Sam. We've actually had some of the most uh, extraordinary numbers from social services. Um, I have three priorities that I'm, I'm focused on. Um, one is about uh, making sure children have safe and stable homes, uh, making sure that we don't see children re-reported at uh, what's called Roche, risk, risk of significant harm, uh, and also uh, working towards halving the, the rate of rough sleepers. Now, they're, the, what, they're three of the 14 Premier's priorities, they sit with me. Um, and there's lots of things underneath each of those priorities. But just to give you a snapshot of where we are now, um, since I've become the minister, we now have this last financial year the highest number of open adoptions in the state's history. Uh, this was the year when we had the highest number of guardianship orders in the state's history. So that's about creating greater permanency for children. And because of the targeted early intervention evidence-based programs that we run, which are about in-home supports where necessary and as significant as they need to be, uh, we've seen the lowest number of children removed from families coming into the care of the state in the last 10 years. Um, so we're, we're working really well in relation to permanency. Still more to go. We still certainly need more foster carers and more short-term and relief foster carers. I think when people think about foster care, they think of a long-term commitment. It doesn't have to be. We need respite carers to give carers a break because often that's one of the reasons why kids come into what's called alternative care arrangements um, because foster care arrangements break down. Uh, in relation to homelessness, well, um, this has actually been an exciting year to 
try and do something given the circumstances we've been in. And when COVID hit, I went and saw the Treasurer and said, uh, we're going to need more money for temporary accommodation because people who are rough sleepers, now this is only one component of the homeless population, but they're the most complex um, because people that are rough sleepers are there because of a symptom of other issues, drug and alcohol addiction, mental illness, family violence, violence, financial hardship. So because of the threat to COVID-19 to people who are rough sleepers who are more susceptible to upper respiratory conditions or indeed rough sleepers giving it to the wider community, I sought additional temporary accommodation uh, from the Treasurer, which we used to put rough sleepers in hotels across Sydney and across the state. But when we'd done that and housed more than 1,500 people uh, who were previously rough sleepers, I wasn't prepared just to do what uh, we saw the Labor Party do after the Olympics, where they housed all these people in boarding houses and then chucked them straight back out on the street. I wasn't prepared to do that. So I went back to the government and argued the case for a housing-first approach to transition these people into community housing with those wraparound supports for mental illness, for drug and alcohol addiction, whatever it may be, to help break the cycle. Uh, and we, we've literally housed hundreds and hundreds of people. And to give you an example, um, uh, we, um, uh, over the last three years, have housed about 600 people um, uh, in permanent accommodation or rough sleepers. We've done it about the same in a matter of months because of this approach. Um, so, you know, I go into Christmas uh, knowing that there are more children that have safe and permanent homes than ever before. We have more people who were rough sleepers in safe and permanent homes than ever before. Uh, in the area of youth justice, our targeted early intervention programs are working. You know, Sam, there are only 200 kids in, in detention right now. I think people think there are thousands. It's not true. We, we, we do everything we can to divert kids from a life of crime because if they, if they do walk through that courtroom door, their chances of success in life are not as great uh, as if we can get in earlier. Uh, and in the area of disabilities, um, there are now 50,000 more people receiving supports because of the National Disability Insurance Scheme that never had them uh, prior to the scheme starting. So um, there's still more to be done, uh, but I'm really proud of what we've been able to achieve, particularly this year, given the extra pressure. Gareth, where where do you stand on, on the approach? Because it sounds like you are taking that approach of... Uh, as you said, early intervention with children and and financial and, and community support for those who need it. So in terms of a harder stance on, on drugs and rehabilitation, do you see that uh, incarceration and, and uh, that style of uh, approach to drug addiction and um, or just addiction in general is not necessarily the best way forward? And, and do you... Ha- I'm sure you've read of and, and seen the likes of Portugal and these other areas that are focusing on uh, support and sort of more, uh, a more, you know, for lack of a better word, a more loving and caring approach towards addiction. Do you see that as a way that Australia will go? Well, look, obviously this matters before Cabinet and I can't um, disclose what, what's happening in Cabinet. It's illegal. I can't do that. Sure. But look, my view's always been the same. My view's never changed, even before this debate. My, my view has always been, similar to Mick Fuller's view, actually, the Police Commissioner, uh, that, um, you know, if you can divert people um, for small possession charges whilst sending a message, so uh, a, a fine, um, uh, plus um, diversionary programs, then that is more ideal than dragging people through the courts and, and potentially ruining their lives. Now, I certainly have that view for people that have made a mistake. I have a very different view for pushers 
uh, and manufacturers. I think you need to be hard and strong and throw the book at them because they're, they're peddling misery. Uh, but if you can do everything you can, particularly kids, to keep them out of the criminal justice system, regardless of what the offence is, uh, the better off we all are. Um, when I got this job, uh, Sam, we actually commissioned a, a body of work um, called Forecasting Future Outcomes. It's the largest human services data set ever compiled by the Australian government. 7.2 million data sets, 3.1 million young people over 27 years. And what it found is that just 7% of children and young people comprise 50% of the welfare budget by the time they're 40. Just 7%. Now, not surprisingly, those children are kids like the kids you're talking about. They're kids that um, have gotten involved in the criminal justice system, the mental health system. They're, they're vulnerable kids, naught to five, often with uh, complex psychosocial or, or other disabilities. Mm. Um, and if you get in earlier, if you intervene earlier at the right point with the right touch point with government, you can change the outcome of that child's life forever. Uh, and and by using data, particularly cross-agency data, which is what I'm certainly working towards, uh, we can better intervene, we can get better outcomes. Uh, and it doesn't matter whether it's a child with a uh, or an underage kid with a, with a, with a small-time drug um, issue or if it be... An older person, you know, you want to intervene earlier uh, and and stop them from that life. It's an incredible area that you're in, Gareth, and and you can hear the passion in your voice and and certainly the knowledge that you have and and that you're forever out there educating yourself and and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to speak with me and and the last question I guess I have for you is is how would you describe your philosophy? Well, look, I think um, I said it earlier uh, when I think that, um, uh, you know, you should never see failure uh, as, as, um, uh, a missed op- as a missed opportunity. It's only a missed opportunity if you don't make, uh, full, take full advantage of it. You know, the Dalai Lama says, when you lose, don't lose the lesson. Uh, and I think that's a really, a really, good, a really good statement because, um, you know, people will often uh, hang failure on themselves. And look, it may be because you've made a mistake. That's fine. You're going to run the rest of your life or uh, take a particular direction because of that one particular event. Well, look, I know that everyone's circumstances are different. Uh, but gosh, uh, Sam, if I took the advice of um, uh, those that were ill-informed or unkind uh, from a very young age, I wouldn't be talking to you now as um, someone who's achieved a lot of what I wanted to do in life. Um, have I achieved everything? Absolutely not. Uh, I've got a list. There's things I still want to do. Um, but... Um, you know, there were, there were people that, that would have written me off when I was uh, growing up as a kid with a disability in a regional area. Um, and I'm really proud of what I've achieved, not just for me, but I love speaking to other people that, for whatever reason, life dealt them a bad hand and, and, and been able to be of encouragement and help and warmth and support to them. Uh, because I've always wanted my life to be about service, and that's not just about helping people. It's also about showing people what they're, they're capable of. Um, my whole political philosophy, Sam, isn't one about raising the floor. It's about removing the roof uh, and encouraging people to achieve their full potential. Um, Robert Menzies, the founder of my party, um, said, you should always do your best. Uh, sometimes someone else's best will be better than yours, but always do your best. Uh, I don't think I can sum it up better than Sir Robert. And, uh, and I'm not surprised that you would finish with a, a quote from <laughs> one of the longest leaders of, of uh, the Liberal Party. The longest. The, the longest, longest. The longest. Twice <laughs> Prime Minister, once under the UAP, and then, of course, he brought the 14 of parties course. together to form the Liberal Party. And, 
you know, uh, he um, he was an amazing, amazing Australian, uh, a great, a great man, and uh, I wish that um, we taught more about that sort of thing in schools. And I certainly hope so, that moving forward with curriculum review, we we do we do uh, encourage more learning in, in those very important areas of our history, uh, because if you don't know your history, you will never understand where you're going. Too true. Too true, and there is so much that we could have uh, explored on this, Gareth. And, and I, as I said earlier, I really appreciate you taking the time out and having such a long, extensive chat and, and being upfront and honest. You know, it really is a, a, an inspirational story, yours, and, and you've certainly had your challenges in life. And, and uh, one thing that has uh, repeated itself through these early episodes of Philosophy is resilience and a, and a focus on resilience, and, uh, and you certainly exude that. So, uh, Congratulations on, on all you have achieved and, and I look forward to, to seeing what, what else you uh, you bring to the table and uh, let, let's, let's hope for a peaceful summer and, and a stronger 2021. Oh, I think we can all hope for that and uh, thanks for the opportunity to be with you and uh, I look forward to having you in Parliament House perhaps on another time when uh, things are a little bit uh, a little bit safer. So uh, thanks for the opportunity on your program, Sam, and uh, thanks for the opportunity to speak with you today. Thanks, Karen. All the best. Cheers.